I'm Steve, I'm location pastor here at uh, Jubilee Church, Washington. Uh, Jubilee Church is multiple locations. We have several. Brian Mowry is the lead pastor of Jubilee, uh, and he usually preaches up in the city, so he's up there this morning uh, doing that. I'm down here preaching uh, Seth over at Lake of the Ozarks. We've got some great things going on, and uh, I'm so glad you're here today. If you're a guest with us today, thanks so much for, especially on a snowy and cold day. I mean, it would have been easy to just stay under the covers today. It's cloudy, it's cold, it's snowy. Maybe you're still wishing you would have stayed there. I hope that that's not true. We've been worshiping Jesus this morning, having a great time uh, doing that, and I I appreciate uh, Elijah and Anna coming down from the city and helping us out there. So, hey, uh, if you've got a Bible, if you would uh, open that up to uh, Colossians 1, uh, 15. If you don't have your own Bible, what we've done is we've provided Bibles for you. Uh, They're the black Bibles. They're on the floor right underneath your uh, seat, and uh, you can open that up to uh, to page 983, and uh, you can get that going. Uh, right now, and uh, then a little bit down the page, just a little way, there's uh, verse number 15. That's where we're going to be reading from today. 13 words. All right, that's how many words we're going to read from the Bible today. 13 of them, but that's plenty. That's actually helpful. I mean, you could go to John, uh, the book of John, and read two words uh, in a verse, and it would still be enough. All right, and you just got to get a hold of that, that the Word of God is sufficient for us. But we're going to look at these 13 words today. We're going to uh, check out what, it, what is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And um, we often, especially coming into this time of year with Christmas, it's like a lot of people are asking, well, who is this Jesus? Was he just a man? Was he just, you know, was he God? Was he somehow some blend mixture of God, man? What is he exactly? We're going to look at some things about who Jesus is. And this verse is going to start us out. It's going to help us. In a couple of weeks, we'll look a little bit more into who he is on the, the December 22nd. Uh, I just want to point this out. If you've got uh, from your bulletin, there's a card in there. Uh, it's called Peace on Earth. We're going to be talking more specifically about why Jesus came. This is a great opportunity for us to invite our friends and our family to hear more about this Jesus that we love and we serve and we're in relationship with. And so just take those with you, hand those to a friend. If you want more, I'm sure there's more on the front table as, as well. But if you found your place there, you're in Colossians 1, 15, right? Here's what it says. It says, um, He is... The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's who Jesus is. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Thank you very much. That's all you really need to say, but there's more to say. You may have come in today, like I was at a point in my life when I was a kid, just wondering, well, who is this Jesus anyway? I mean... Is he really God? Well, that's what this verse says. I mean, I'll just tell you, here's my thesis statement for the day, just so you know. Jesus is God. All right? If you don't catch anything else from the rest of what I say today, come away with this. Jesus is God. Now, you may not believe that. You may not understand that. You may not comprehend that. And that's fine. I'm I'm glad you're here today to join us as we kind of investigate this. Look at exactly what does it mean when we say that Jesus is God? Um, I, don't, I don't know, you know kind of where you're coming from, but I know this. Jesus' disciples, at some point, they looked at Jesus in, in John 14, and one of, they're just sitting around, they're talking, and they're going, okay, uh, Jesus, when are you going to show us who God is? When are you going to show us what God is like? And Jesus just kind of looked at Philip, and he said, how long have you been with me anyway, that you don't realize that when you're looking at me, you're looking at God? How long do you not, I mean, do you not get it when you see me? You're seeing God. You're knowing me. You're knowing God. I mean, just Jesus just put it. I couldn't say that. 
You couldn't say, I don't know any religious leader who could say that, but Jesus flat out says it. If you're looking at me, you're looking at God. That's pretty profound, isn't it? It's a pretty big deal, I think. Now, we have lots of different ways of thinking about even God, okay? And I want to bust a couple of things out this morning, the the ways that we think that I think are real helpful, all right? The first is that we sometimes think about God as like a vitamin supplement God. Here's what I mean about that. Every, Every morning I get up, I drink my coffee, I try to remember, my wife reminds me, take your vitamin, you need your vitamin. Now, I don't survive on vitamins, okay? I'm not the Jetsons, okay, who could just pop a pill and they've got their dietary supplement for, I mean, for the whole day. That's their supplement. I like steak and potatoes and green beans and corn. I eat a lot of things. But vitamin supplements are just that. They're a supplement. They're something added on. And I think a lot of us approach God that way. And what we think of is God is kind of like he's the, he's the vitamin. He's the side dish. He's the side course. He's not central. He's peripheral. Right? He's on the edges of life. He's kind of more of a hobby, not so much the hub. He's kind of more like a spare tire than the steering wheel. And I think we kind of get that mindset when we think about who God is, is we think, well, he's just kind of a supplement that I take in my life just in case I need him. He's a spare tire I can pull out of the trunk when times get a little rough. When we read this verse, I think that totally starts blowing away this mindset that God is just kind of a vitamin supplement that we add to our lives. There are other ways that we can think about God that this scripture begins to address that I just I want to help us as well with. We want to simplify who God is in lots and lots of ways. I don't know about you, when I hear the word Trinity, sometimes my mind just kind of gets in a, in a knot. But when we read this passage, the verses before, we see God the Father, we see God the Son, we see things about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> And it's like, I want to simplify that, right? I want to get that into a way that I can comprehend. Have you ever done this before? And so like when when I was a kid, my Sunday school teacher said, well, God's kind of like an egg. And I thought, egg? God's an egg? What? I didn't get it. He's like, no, no, God's kind of like an egg. You know, he's got, you know, there's three parts to him. You know, just like there's three parts to an egg. There's the shell, there's the white, there's the yolk. The problem with doing uh, uh, things like that, I mean, I'm not against them at a rudimentary level. They can kind of help you see, okay, it's one thing, but it's three things. What it doesn't do is actually help me all the way because an egg, if you take and break the shell open and look at the shell, is that an egg? No, it's not an egg. What about the white? Is that an egg? No, it's not an egg. What about? Of course not. The yolk's not an egg. It's not an egg unless it's complete, right? But you take God the Son and you look at Him and He's all God. You take God the Father, look at Him, He's all God. You take God the Holy Spirit, look at Him, He's all God. There's not like they're just bits and pieces of God. They're God, each one of them. Or they say about water, hey, water exists in three forms, right? Out there right now, how is water existing? Ice, right? It's a solid form or a liquid form or steam. It's a gas, right? Well, when you start doing that, what you do is you start developing a misunderstanding of what, who God is. Actually, this particular example, if you follow it too long, you, you fall into a complete heresy about who God is. It's a heresy called modalism, that God exists, and then like he just shows up in history in three different ways, in three different forms. I mean, 1,700 years ago, that was proven to be completely false and erroneous, and you shouldn't put your life on that, okay? So that's like, whoa, okay, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to try to soften about this and, and get an understanding that God just shows up different persons in different times throughout history. No, Jesus is God. 
We can also look and say, well, maybe he's like this big pie chart. You know, you get a pie chart, it's all one piece, but then you got like, you know, a third father, a third son, and a third Holy Spirit, or maybe you like the Holy Spirit more, so you say, well, he's 50% Holy Spirit, you know, 25% father, 25% son. I don't know, you know, and it's just like you, you just break it down and you realize, no, no, that, that falls way short of kind of understanding who God is. God, first of all, we want to understand God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And today, when we look at this verse and it says, He is the image of the invisible God, what we're seeing is we're seeing the Son, God the Son, being fully exemplified as God. We also see, though, that each person, okay, God is three persons, each person is God. So God the Father is absolutely God. God the Son is absolutely 100% solid gold God, okay? Holy Spirit, 100% solid gold God. He's not just some energy force. He is God. And then finally, there is but one God. You can fall into another trap that just says, oh, well, see, you guys believe in tritheism, that there's three different gods. No, no, no. There's one God. He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one of those is absolutely God. There is one God. Now, so when we look at this, we begin to see the Son exemplified, and and we see that Jesus is being called God here. He's being said that He is the image of the invisible God. Now, God has made Himself known to man in lots of ways throughout history. If you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, you'll see ways that God did that. He appears in some fashion to Abraham, and then He appears to Moses. When He appears to Moses, He introduces Himself to Moses in this way, and Moses says, you know, he's at the burning bush. I don't know if you remember that story, but he, he sees this burning bush that's not being consumed, but it's being burned. And God says to him, I want you to tell my people that I'm wanting them to come back to me. And he said, well, who are you? And he simply says this, I am. That's all he says. He says, here's what you tell them, I am. And when we see what Paul writes here, he says, Jesus is the he is. He is the I am, okay? He is the one that the Old Testament describes as I am. We see Jesus actually picking up on the same language when uh, he's being challenged by some religious leaders about, well, who are you, Jesus? And he says, look, even before Abraham, the father of your faith was, I am. He didn't say I was. He said, I am. Paul's picking up on that theme. He's saying, this is the God who has existed for all eternity. This Jesus is God You look at the word image, and maybe that's a confusing word to you. Let me see if I can help you out just a little bit. It's the word in uh, Greek is actually icon. It's, I don't know the Greek letters. I couldn't spell it for you. But in English, it's I-C-O-N, right? It's an icon. How many of you play with computers occasionally? You get on them. You work on them. What what are those little emblems on a screen? What do we call those? We call those icons. Well, what are they? They're they're a, a representation of the whole thing. Okay, You click on it, you get the whole thing. It is the whole thing. And so Jesus is the image. And this word actually, it's like a complete reflection or a high definition projection of who God is. He allows us to see completely who He is. Now, God has been never visibly seen with any human eye. You look at John chapter 1, verse 18, it says that very clearly. It says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one who is at the right hand of the Father, has revealed Him to us. See, it doesn't say Jesus, this man, reveals him. It says, but God, who is the right hand of the Father, has revealed him to us. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the seen of the unseen. 
He's the visible of the invisible. I don't know, maybe that helps you a bit. It helps us to see this is who Jesus declares that he is. This is who Paul is declaring that Jesus is. So when we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. Well, how do we see God in Jesus? I want to just point out two or three things here. First of all, we see authority in creation. When Jesus walked the earth, one of the first miracles he did is he declared himself the ruler of all creation. He takes plain old tap water, right, and he turns it into the best wine available. That's pretty amazing. He just says, water, you're no longer water, you're wine. Boom, and it's wine. He says to seas that are storm-tossed and winds that are blowing hard, he says, stop it, and they stop, (laughs) amazingly. He takes little crumbs of bread and a few pieces of fish, and he feeds like multitudes with this little bit because he's able to say, creation, I'm Lord over you. You have to do what I tell you to do, and then does it. He does it in another way. He does it in forgiveness of sins. In Mark chapter uh, 2, I want to read just a short passage to you about how Jesus declares himself to be God. The story is this way. Jesus is talking. He's speaking to some people, much like I am in a room, except it was like a house. And there are people packed into the gills. I mean, there's no space for anybody. These four guys have a lame friend. And they say, hey, we want to take you to Jesus because we believe he can heal you. And so they climb up on the roof. They rip a big hole in the roof and they lower him down through it. And Jesus doesn't change his preach and say, okay, guys, we need to talk about responsibility. You guys shouldn't have done that. Okay? He doesn't change his preach. What he does is he looks at the man, he has compassion for him, and he says this to him. He says, your sins be forgiven you. Now, wait a minute. They just lowered him down because he's crippled, and he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. I forgive your sins. More clearly, Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they got pretty upset, as you can imagine. I mean, okay, take it this way. Let's say, let's say that um, I'm, I get offended by someone. You know, I can say to my daughter, Anna, here, she offends me in some way, and she comes and says, forgive me, and I say, I forgive you. And that's, that's okay. But let's say Anna does, she punches Rick in the face, okay? And I say, it's okay, Anna, I forgive you. You're forgiven of all your sins. And Rick's looking at me like, what the heck? Come on, you can't do that. She hurt me. She didn't hurt you, right? That's the way we think about sin. We think about sin on a sociological level. You hurt me, that's a sin against me, so therefore I'm the only one who can forgive you of the sin against me, right? That's the way we understand it. In the Bible, though, sin is not on a horizontal level only. It's actually vertical. All of the sins that I might ever do to hurt you actually have a target that is greater than you, It's God. All my sin is actually rebellion against the one who made me. All of your sin against me is not just against me. It's actually rebellion against the God who made you. It's vertical. How do I know that? you got a Bible. Flip over to Psalm uh, 51, and you see this mea culpa. Here's King David, Psalm 51, verse 4. Sorry, I I didn't write the page down number for this one. All sin though it has a horizontal component, is absolutely focused toward God. It's my rebellion against Him. It's vertical. Here's how I know that. The story is this. David sins a great sin. What we look at is usually the adultery that he commits with Bathsheba. That's what we usually see. But here's, let me just tell you a few other things that he did. He's the king of Israel. He's supposed to have the first five books of the Bible memorized so that he doesn't sin against God and so that he doesn't sin against his people. He's supposed to be representing 
all of Israel by doing the right things all the time. Pretty much pressure, high pressure deal. But he abuses his power by having this woman come and drawn and taken to, to sleep with him. So he abuses his power over all of Israel. So he sins against all Israel. He sins against Bathsheba by sleeping with her, by forcing her by his power as being king to sleep with him. He, he sins against Uriah because he sleeps with the guy's wife. Then, to put on top of that, he, dis, he brings him home and says, tries to get him to sleep with his wife. He can't get him to do it. So he deceives him that way. Then, when he won't, he won't be deceived, what he does is he sends him to the battle lines and says, put him on the front line. I want him killed. And he has him murdered. Now, let's read in light of all those sins, and that's just scratching the surface, of all those sins against other people, let's read the way that David confesses his sin. You ready? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Wait a minute, David. You sinned against all these people, and all you're saying is you sinned against God? Yeah, and he's absolutely right about that. His sin, though it affected and hurt many, many people, a whole nation, his sin is primarily targeted at God. His heart is hardened and rebellion against God. So when Jesus says, I forgive your sins, he's actually the only one who can do that. He's God. David was making a confession to Jesus. He was saying, You, I've sinned against you. You, when you confess your sins to one another, it's an awesome thing to do. It's a powerful thing to confess and forgive one another. But the thing is, our sin is primarily focused. God is the target of our rebellion. We don't feel that way. We often feel like, no, I hurt somebody. No, you have, here's what Isaiah says, your sins have made a barrier between you and God. Not God's barrier toward you, your barrier toward him. You have put, you've locked the door between you and God. Jesus can forgive. He can unlock the door when we ask him. He's the one that we have sinned against. Jesus also shows that he's God by rising from the dead. Rising from the dead. Now, there were people in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead. There was this kid uh, who who died, and and Elisha the prophet went to him. Uh, He raised him up from the dead. After Elisha died, his bones were buried underground, and these guys, they're in a wartime situation. They take a dead body. They throw it on top of Elisha's bones. As soon as he hits the bones, he pops up. He's alive. He goes running off with them. They're out of trying to run away from the enemy. So raising people from the dead wasn't anything particularly new. Now, we look at it, and we go, whoa, that's weird. I don't... In the Bible, it's not that weird. It happens. Jesus raised several people from the dead in his time on the earth. But for Jesus to raise himself from the dead. This is a completely different thing. In John chapter 10, he says, look, my life, I lay it down willingly. I do it of my own choice of will, and I take it back up again. Hello. That's pretty amazing, right? You can't do that. I can't do that. Jesus does that, and he proves it. Three days after he's crucified, he rises from the dead. He raises, he's he's up, he's alive. He's totally new. So much so that when Thomas wants to look at him, he says, look, I won't believe Jesus is raised from the dead until I put my fingers in the scars of his hands and my hand in his side. Jesus appears to him and says, okay, go for it. And what Thomas does in that moment as another huge proof of Jesus' deity, he bows down on his face and he worships Jesus and says, my Lord and my God, confessing that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God. 
If someone, if someone bows down to me, I'm going to get them up off the ground. I do not deserve to be worshipped. If you're smart, you would do the same thing. Angels will not allow for people to bow down and worship them. You and I certainly shouldn't allow that. Only Jesus says, go ahead. Why? Because he's God. That's why. So he's worshipped. Jesus is the seen of the unseen. He's the visible of the invisible. He makes God known to us. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing God. Now, let's move to the next section. He is the image of the invisible God, but then it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. In other words, he should have first place. He should have first place. We see this theme throughout the Bible. If you like read the Old Testament scriptures, you see things like the firstborn son always gets the inheritance, right? Have you read things like that? So like, um, you know, uh, I can't think of examples of all of a sudden of actual firstborns. There's a reason for that. Because actually, there's, although the firstborn has the inheritance, many times in the scripture, it's not the firstborn who gets the inheritance. So like you look at Jacob and Esau. Esau is the firstborn, but Jacob ends up getting the blessing of the firstborn. You look at uh, this guy Joseph in the Old Testament, the guy who saved Israel and Egypt from great famine, his two sons, uh, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, same kind of thing. The younger ends up being the one who's blessed. So firstborn doesn't necessarily mean chronological firstborn. What it means is supremacy. What it means is first place. What it means is ruler and king. That's what it means. And so we see that with God. Let me just look at, uh, let me help you with a commentary. This guy, Clark's commentary, it says the Jews... Talked about Jehovah this way. They use this phrase. I can't say it. I won't even try. But (laughs) it says when when it talks about Jehovah, he's the firstborn of the world. You guys have heard Jehovah, right? Or Yahweh. It says that he's the firstborn of all the world and of all creation, signifying that he created or produced all things. Christ here is termed. And the words which follow in verses 16 and 17 are proof of this. The phrasing is Jewish. And they are applied to the supreme being merely to denote his eternal pre-existence and for him to, point out, uh, to be pointed out as the cause of all things. So when we say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, what he's saying is he's the cause of all things. He takes place, first place in everything. He's the creator God. And he comes to this earth as a man. Another way to say it is he is the unequivocal sovereign over all created things. The unequivocal sovereign of all created things. And this God chose to become a man. He's the God who became man. The reason I want to point this out is because he is not the man who became God. That's often a way that people would think that, well, he's born as this man, so he becomes God by doing all these things. No, no, no. He is the God who became man. He experienced human life to the full. He's not just part God and part man. He's not just God in a bod, okay? That's one theological way he's just God in a bod. Here's what that means. That somehow he just kind of took on flesh, you know, and he's got this body, but, you know, his mind and soul is kind of God's mind and soul. No. He has a human mind and a human soul. He has God's mind and God's spirit. He is God, 100%. He is man, 100%. And He is unified into one being, man, the Christ. Fully God, fully man. J. 
Jesus isn't just some second-class God. You can kind of look at it and say, he must be second-class. He's some kind of created being. No, he's not. He was preexistent with the Father eternally. We sing this song from time to time. It's from a confession, the Nicene Creed, that says he is light from light. He is God from God. He is of the same substance. When you see Jesus, you see God. He's the uncreated creator. Everything that does exist, exists because of him. And a little bit later in the passage it says, and he holds all things together. (laughs) Jesus is God. But he became a man. In Galatians 4, it just says that he was born of a woman at the right time. At the time when God wanted it to happen, he was born of a woman. In other words, he went through the human, human birthing process as a baby. You know, we sing, away in the manger, no crying he makes. Guess what? Jesus cried. If he didn't, he wasn't human. I mean, if you've got a baby who doesn't cry, you need to get them checked out. There's something wrong here. They divide, you know, they they, in a spooky movie or something, but they're not, they're not normal. Jesus cried. He dirtied his diapers. Okay, he did. He scraped his knee. All right, he scraped his knee, but he's able to heal multitudes from their diseases. He was hungry, and yet he can take bits of bread and fish, and he can feed a multitude. He was weary, but he can get up from his sleep, wipe the sleep from his eyes in a storm-tossed boat, look out over the sea and say, be still, be quiet, and it does so. Wiping sleep from his eyes, but saying, be still at the same time and having it be so. He went through every temptation, yet he's completely sinless. He's the timeless God. He becomes subject to time so that when his friend Lazarus dies, he doesn't show up. Before he dies, he shows up after he dies. He's subject to time, and yet he's timeless, eternal. He's the all-powerful God, yet he's rejectable. He's woundable. He's killable God, a killable man. I mean, he's God, but he is man. He's the unseen and unapproachable and untouchable God, and yet John describes him as he is one who's to be seen and approached and touched the one who our eyes have seen and our hands have handled the word of life. He's God. He's God. He's the firstborn, and he should have first place. Now, why is this important? Why do we talk about Jesus in such terms? Well, first of all, we do because the Bible says so. We want to understand what the Bible says, but we also want to understand, well, what does that mean? How does that apply? What does that do for me to know Jesus is genuinely He's God. It's vital because every other part of creation listens to Jesus and does what he says to do except humanity. We're the rebellious ones. We're the highest pinnacle of God's creation, and yet we're the ones who do not do what God says to do. Have you ever thought about that? The highest pinnacle of God's creation, and yet everything else obeys him. You know, water turns to wine. Seas are stopped into peaceful oceans. Food has changed from just a little bit to a lot, and we don't want to do what God says to do. We all have this propensity to want to have life on our terms. I'll give an example from my own life as a kid. When I was um, five or six, my dad tried to, he, 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 first of all, he took my brother's old bike, he painted it up, put a new seat on it, put the new little hanging whatever those little tassels, you know, off the handlebars, painted it bright red, put a nice bright red seat on it and all this. 
And my birthday's in February, so it was a few months later. He said, hey, come on, let's go out. It's a nice day. Let's go out, and I'll teach you how to ride a bike. What a good dad, right? He's trying to teach me how to get... We fought like nobody's... I mean, I resisted everything he tried to do. I did the opposite. I would not do... Finally, after about an hour of this, he just throws up and he says, fine, I'm done. He walks in the house. My brother comes out, my older brother. He's seven years older than me. Bless his heart. Patient as can be. He walks out there. Okay, man, I'll help you. I'll help you. He grabs a hold of the thing, and I'm just like, I'm resisting every advance, every possible technique he's trying to get me to. I resist it. These guys are being good to me, but I am, I'm going to do it my way. I mean, I, and so I did. I went out to a ditch. We had a ditch out beside the house, and I got the wheel down in the bottom of the ditch, and I got my feet on either side, and I'd push off, and I'd balance and push off, and I finally learned how to do it myself. Now, you could take that story and say, yeah, yeah, self-reliance. Steve did it himself, blah, blah, blah. No, I was an idiot. I had people who want, loved me and wanted to help me, and I wouldn't listen to what they were wanting me to do because I want life on my terms. You and I are the same way when it comes to God. Here's God. He says, I will come to you in human flesh. I will come to you as a babe. I will come to you as a human being. I will live the life you should have lived, completely sinless, completely empowered by the Spirit of God. I will love you. I will give my very life's blood for you. And we go, eh, I don't want it. You're going to tell me what to do? You can't tell me what to do. We resist because we want life on our own terms. In John chapter 6, there's a story about Jesus where he had, I uh, pulled some of these examples of how God, you know, he was Lord over, Jesus was Lord over creation. Because in this story, he actually, he healed multitudes. He fed over, you know, 5,000 men plus all the wives and kids that were there. He calmed the stormy seas all in that one passage. And then at some point in time, the, the people who were there, they, they go looking for him because he's kind of off a bit. and They can't find him. And they finally find him and it says there in the passage, they want to make him king. And what it says, Jesus, in his understanding of humanity, was very, very, you'll appreciate this. He looked at these guys, and he, he realized that what they wanted is they wanted full bellies. They didn't really want Jesus. See, they were approaching Jesus because he was a ways and means committee. He was the way that they could get what they really believed life was all about. If they could get a full belly, hey, that's where life really comes from. And so Jesus basically says to them, look, guys, I'm not going to feed you like this. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And guess what? They got angry. They got grumpy. They didn't like what he had to say. You and I are much the same way. We believe that life is found in our needs being met, the fulfillment of our desires. That's where life really comes from. And if I can use Jesus to get that, then I'll come to Jesus. He's a vitamin supplement. He's a spare tire that I keep just in case of emergencies. He's a hobby, but not really the hub. We have lots of needs. They had a need for food. They were hungry people. But it wasn't just like, I'm hungry, you know, I guess we better fix some dinner. It's this gnawing hunger that says, if I don't have this, life is not worth living. You ever had a, something like that before? I hear teenagers and adults, actually, not just teenagers, hey, this new movie's coming out. Oh, I can't wait to see it. My life's not complete until I get to see whatever. I, it, hey, adults say it too, right? This concert's coming. Oh, man, life will be so much better when I get to do this thing, right? 
But see, that's even just in things that are, we, we know that, but what about your next meal? What about the water you drink? What about the emotional needs that you have? I mean, you want to be respected and appreciated, right? We all want that. I want that. I want you to respect me. I want you to appreciate me. I love getting thank you notes. It's wonderful. Hint, hint, hint. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> no, I send out a lot. You guys know. I send out a lot of thank you notes, and I do appreciate you guys, and I know we all have that need, but what it can become is it becomes a hunger that we just, it's like poison ivy. It's an itch you just can't scratch. Because once you start scratching it, it just gets worse and worse. You ever had those needs? For some of us, respect is like that. I need it so bad, I will get it at any cost. Wanting to be loved by a parent or by your spouse. I mean, it's a good thing to be loved by your spouse or by your parents. But it can be transformed in such a hunger, and really it's a lust. It's something that cannot be satisfied. Or maybe it's acceptance and approval. Man, I love acceptance and approval, and actually this can be a big problem for me. I I actually have to be careful to be aware. Do I just want to get acceptance and approval by getting laughs or telling jokes or being nice to people? Yeah, that's fine. It's good to do that. It's good to have acceptance and approval, but does it cause me to not want to tell the truth because then I wouldn't be accepted of it, I wouldn't be approved of it? Where am I trying to get acceptance and approval from? Maybe it's money or pain-free body or marriage that, you know, you're single and just like you're craving being married so badly or being promoted at work instead of being passed over, having a job when you don't have one, having a happy family when your life, when your family looks like a wreck right now. I mean, those are all needs, Right? We all understand those are genuine needs that we have, but the way that we approach God is often that you're the one who can actually cause this to happen, and that will meet my need. Not, I will come to you, and you are the one who meets my need. See, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel, they were being fed by God daily. They were given manna daily. On the weekends, they could pick up enough on Friday night to, you know, get through Saturday as well because, you know, but every day they were supposed to do it. And so what they did was they would say this on Monday, they would go out and they would pick up enough that they needed for that day. But then a lot of them started thinking this way, hey, I better look out for Tuesday too. And so they scrape up enough there, they get home, they eat, and they have some left over by morning. It's maggots and worms and stinking. Why? They wanted a bread machine. And God said, no, no, I will daily provide for you. You come to me. On the weekends, he said, I'm not going to provide on Saturday, guys. That's the Sabbath. That's the day you're not going to do it. You're not going to work that day. They went out and decided to look for manna. Guess what? They didn't find any. Why were they looking? Because they assumed that God was like a pinata. If I pray hard enough, I beat him with the prayer stick, good things are going to fall out. You guys think that way. I think that way. I think the, the way that my life is genuinely fulfilled is if I get my needs met down here on this horizontal level, and God says, no, what I want is you to rely on me and trust me. You come to me daily. Give us this day our daily bread. You're the one who supplies my needs. So what the people of Israel did were just like the people in John 6. They grumbled. They complained. They accused God. You have brought me to this point because you want to destroy me. They were accusing God of actually wanting to destroy them when all he wanted them to do was to trust him. Rather than relationship, we give him rebellion. They didn't treasure God. They didn't value him. They valued what they could get from him. What about you? What about me? 
Yeah, I do that. I go to God not for what, so I can have relationship, so that I can get stuff from Him that I believe this is where life really comes from. If I have this, then my life is complete. And He says, No, if you have Me and don't have anything else, then your life is complete. There are three questions I want you to ponder a little bit this morning about your soul state and, and the grumbling that goes on inside of you. They'll kind of help you to evaluate whether Jesus is taking first place or if your needs and and you are taking first place. First of all, what makes you angry? I have an angry uh, anger issue. My fellow parents, kids will tell you that. I mean, they they know there are times when I'm just like, you know, dad's explosive. It was bad. But I'm not talking about punch you in the face kind of anger necessarily. I'm talking about just being irritable. I mean, you're just irritable and grumpy. You get frustrated easily. What makes you frustrated? What makes you irritated? What makes you grumpy? What makes you get a little bit pushy trying to get your way? What makes you moody? What makes you defensive to try to manipulate things or to make yourself look better in front of other people so that you get what you're looking for? You get that sense of affirmation, not by looking to God and saying, God, you're my affirmation, but to look to others and say, no, I need this horizontal What makes you angry? What makes you anxious? And I don't just mean, you know, just biting the fingernails, pacing the floor, although those are, I think, examples of it. But what keeps you awake at night? What causes you to be kind of self-occupied? Like uh, years ago, I was supposed to have a conversation with a guy. I mean, for days and weeks, I was playing the conversation ahead of time. I was worrying. I was anxious about this conversation. And a good friend of mine said to me, it was a helpful thing. He said, look, every conversation that you have with this person is not a battle. You need to quit like loading for bear going into this conversation. It was helpful. I was anxious about it. I was concerned that they would not accept me anymore. That I would say, I mean, and some of it was just I was afraid I was going to rip the guy's face off. But Beyond that, I was afraid that I would damage relationship. Then ripping a person's face off does damage the relationship. Um, I was concerned about that, so much so that I was anxious and worried. I wasn't looking to God. I wasn't praying, saying, God, you're the Lord. This relationship's in your hands. Yes, I need to be truthful and honest here, but I don't have to destroy this person. Perfectionism. You just, you just nitpick at things. Nail-biting, preening, play with your hair all the time, pulling... Those are anxiety things that what they show is this. I'm not looking to God. I'm believing that he is here to hurt me instead of love me. What makes you want to escape? Escape is a big thing in our culture, right? When we have it in lots of ways, we escape in all kinds of ways. We escape by going on the, you know, on the internet. You check your Facebook status. Oh, hang on a second. No, you know. (laughs) I got to check my Facebook status, not just like once a day, but like, 20 times an hour, I'm constantly checking it, you know? Did someone say anything nice about me? Did I, you know? Yeah, you're constantly checking it. You're constantly checking the weather report. You know, I don't want to be concerned about the weather. You're anxious, but you're escaping. You're looking for ways to escape through social media. Maybe it's through sports and sports scores. You got, you know, 101 point whatever, the 101.3, the sports radio is on constantly, and you've got, you know, all your iPhone apps are like ESPN, CBSPN, whatever. I mean, you've got all these different things going on as well. 
unnecessary snacking. You're anxious. And so rather than just saying, I, I need a meal, what you're doing is you're just snacking all the time. And that has a story about that, a time when she was anxiety, you know, had a lot of anxiety. She was going to the pantry looking for chocolate, you know, and God said to her, look, you don't need chocolate, you need me. And she stopped and she went and she got with God, which great response on her part. I wouldn't have done that. I would have gone for the chocolate. <clears throat> Rebellious heart. I like to have things my way, right? All-consuming hobbies. Maybe it is drugs, alcohol, food, abuse. Food can be abused just like drugs and alcohol, okay? sex, all those addictive kinds of tendencies that we have. What they are is they're saying, I have to have life on my terms, God. You're not providing it when I want it, and so I'm going to get it any way that I can. And it's a form of grumbling in our souls against our maker, Jesus who is the firstborn of all creation, who deserves first place, we say, no, 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 I get first place, Jesus. You're the spare tire. That's the way our hearts go. We approach Jesus not because we believe he's all satisfying, but we believe he's our ticket to getting what we really believe will give us life. But Jesus is meant to take first place. In this John 6 passage again, Peter, at the end of the passage, Jesus is looking out and he's seeing these crowds just leaving. Leave him. And his disciples, the 12 of them, they're sitting there, and he's looking at them, and he goes, are you guys leaving too? And Peter just looks at him and says, Where, who else can we go to that has the words of life? And I, I love this phrase, actually, that he doesn't just stop there. He says, we have believed, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What about you? Have you come to know that Actually, there's no place, no one else you can go to that he genuinely deserves first place in your life. See, when we get to that point, when we say, no, Jesus, you are the all-satisfying treasure of my life, then the needs that I have, I can deal with much more easily because I can simply approach God and I can say, I know that you have what is best for me. You know what is best for me. Would you please provide me with what I need? I need food today. I'm hungry. I I feel like I'm being rejected by people, God, and I need your acceptance to know of you, that that I'm accepted in the beloved, which is what the Bible says about you. When we put Jesus at first place, we believe that what he says about us is true. He says, I'm accepted in the beloved, and I know, okay, in Jesus. I'm fully accepted. If everyone else hates me, it's okay. When I come to him and I know he's the all-satisfying treasure, 